Well, hello there, terrible warriors. Welcome back to another Session Zero. This one's going to be different. As you know, we've been doing Session Zero this year, a exploration, an exploration, an exploration of character creation, the phase in the game that we usually skip over here on the show. We have already looked through games that we have played in the past, Star Trek Adventures. We have looked into settings we're all familiar with, with Cyberpunk Red. We went through a game that had got me really excited with Morkborg. This game was something else that we're talking about today. Nibiru appeared on the cover to be a different game than I ended up reading in the book. This is very much a case of don't judge the book by its cover. This game was not what I thought it was going to be when we went into it, and I have spent the last week having to unlearn all of my expectations. It is a storytelling first game, very heavy on the stories, very light on the rules. It's very weird sci-fi. It can be kind of whatever you want it to be in some ways. And I'm very excited to talk about it today, uh, but I'm also very excited to not have to talk about it alone. Joining me at the table for our next session, Zero, welcome back, Velvet Duke. Well, thank you very much, Justin. Uh, I was in the exact same boat that you just described, that I was looking forward to uh, to raspberry flavor, ended up being strawberry. I'm still excited for it, but it took me a little bit to get those taste uh, sensors uh, adjusted. It was very much a case of the, the the meal came out to the table and I had a look at it. And went, uh, this isn't what I ordered. And they're like, uh, yes, sir, it was. And then I realized it's because I don't read French. <laughs> and this, so... On the cover, this is what Nibiru says it is. Uh, and, and what I say on the cover, it's actually on the very back of the book. Nibiru, a colossal space station home to millions, where stories of drama and struggle are written on a daily basis. Take on the roles of vagabonds, people who wake up inside the station, devoid of memories as they search far and wide for the lost remnants of their past, while setting into motion a series of events that will change the face of the skyless world forever. So I picked up on a couple of things there. Of Nibiru is a colossal space station, and we're playing characters that have no memories of themselves. And through the game, you remember your past, and you begin to fill in your character sheet. So at the beginning of the game, your character sheet is quite empty, which is, unfortunately for Session Zero's format, means we haven't created our characters, because even if we did, they wouldn't remember who they were anyways. So in the last couple of episodes, we have all come together, we've made our characters in advance. This is going to play off a little bit more like a book review, because there isn't really a character to make beyond the concept of your character, which, given the nature of the game, does require you to really work it out with your group in advance what character concepts you want to work with because they are going to change the style of game you are playing. So in the case of Morkborg or Cyberpunk or Star Trek, where you could really create your characters by yourself, I'm going to say right here, too long, didn't read. Don't do that with this game. Uh, you could create a really high concept character that will clash with everyone else at the table and has a completely different motivation for playing that would make this game very frustrating. This is going to work out, if you decide to play it, much more in your favor if you do your session zero together as a group and make your characters and go over your options as a collective, more so than some of the other games. 
I I hundred percent agree with you. But as a thought experiment, I actually did create my character. Oh damn! And what I found, what, what I found though, so I and I followed through the you know the the mechanics that they had for it. And then it, one of them is to come up with where where you start out. And I was pleased by how much the concept I had suddenly fit into one of these areas. And it was like, oh, like that aligns. But I absolutely agree. If I were to do that and bring that to the table, now everybody else would have to shoehorn or just jump on board yeah. with. Yeah, exactly. I, Either you're going to quarterback them or you're going to be yeah. dragging them around or you're just going to be pulling the group in different directions. This is also a game that would work really well, just as well, if you are in a situation where you only have two people. Um, I, I, yeah. don't, I don't I don't I, I see this game would fall apart if you have a large group. I would not recommend you play it with more than four players at the table. So four plus a GM. Beyond that, it's going to be very difficult to track the memories and the stories and the threads that you're doing, as well as also give enough time for everyone to have those moments in the spotlight way more than a, a game like Morkborg that we did in the last session zero. You could do it with like nine players, no problem, because it's just uh, um, heavy metal combat all the way through it's it's action oriented uh there's stories that are happening but the stories don't necessarily happen with the player characters they happen with the world around you so you can have more fun nibiru is also going to ask you as the player to work a lot harder than you might in other games uh <laughs> you are going to be hopefully not put on the spot because i don't really like that but you're going to be asked to provide a lot more of the world building, to be involved with the GM in creating not just the memories your character is going to remember, but also the moves and the skills that you're going to be writing down. Because unlike other RPGs, there is no list of skills in this book. Uh, the gameplay style of your table might change from game to game and so they have left it literally blank to fill in as you go maybe melee combat is enough to cover all that skills or maybe your game is getting a little bit more nuanced and you want to have uh, specific weapon types to be written down like in something like in cyberpunk red where uh, a, 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 a blunt weapon versus a sharp weapon and you would have different skills for that maybe a combat isn't interesting enough to, or isn't the focus of your story and you don't even need to differentiate between range and you just put combat as your skill. So it can be as generalized or as specific as your game group requires. And that can be, for some groups, incredibly frustrating because it, it leaves it to be like all options are options so then no option feels like an option. So Nibiru does ask this in advance and fair warnings we go into it, there's a lot of nebulous gray zone in this book that while the world building is so juicy, like, mm, I just want to eat it. It's like a full steak. But the actual mechanics of the game are left very nebulous intentionally so that the characters, the players themselves and the GM have a lot more agency to craft the game they want to be playing as they're playing it which is a good thing and can be a very frustrating thing, depending on the group you're with. So I'm hoping in the next hour we're going to help um, demystify what this game was, what I thought it was going to be, so that if you decide this is a game you want to try out, you're going in with more open eyes on what it's going to be. I 
love it. I think it's great. I do think it will take a very particular group and intention of that group to be able to enjoy it. Um, and for some players, this might be very frustrating and might just simply be asking too much. Uh, so that's that's kind of my my little slug line at the very top before before we get into the article. And unfortunately, this is the type of it's the type of game where you need that long of a slug line just to kind of wrap around because they are so nebulous. They're making you do that work. This is a them. game where, as I have now firstly found out, because I pitched it to, to Velvet without knowing what the game was about, you could very quickly sell this game very easily to your friends and then sit down and open up the book and go, oh, crap, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And then you're stuck here now having committed time to preparing for this game. And it's not what you wanted it to be. This game knows what it wants to be in a certain way. And uh, I think the best way to help explain because now you're going you're in like 10 minutes going like what are they talking about they're all talking about in circles all in riddles let's rather than talk about the characters here break it down on what nibiru is as the setting and i think the book weirdly enough i was reading through character creation isn't until page 126 of 207 <laughs> the first like two-thirds of the book are all setting and I think that was a very wise choice from the game creators because the characters inhabit this world even though they kind of don't. <laughs> I'll explain that in a minute. And it really does help if everyone who's going to play this game knows what Nibiru is, knows about the locations and the setting so that they can have informed choices on if they even want to play this game, which, again, requires a lot more uh understanding of the game than you might necessarily ask your players like if i'm sitting down a game of dnd i always tell them like you don't have to read the rules at all i'm the only one who needs to read the book you can just sit, show up and play and have a great time you could do that with nibiru but it might be better off to share the game with your friends and have them all read a little bit in advance, at least in bits, so that they know if this is something they want to get involved in or not. So, and, and what you just said is what I, I think that it is a failing in this rule book is that, uh, you know, page eight or wherever they actually start their chapter one. Uh, I think if you had just a very quick rundown of, you know, what to expect from this book, yeah. uh, I think that would help a lot more for the people who are looking for action storytelling or looking for something where it's not, you're, you're not going to have to be a, a journalist, uh, you know, some like just have manage the expectation of each, each type of player, including the, the, the narrator uh, so that they know what their role is with this world before they have to go through all of like, I think it's great how it's laid out, but even just having that one or half a page, if not a full page, saying, hey, here's the quick start and why you might be interested in this. And this is a book where, yeah, it it it, it was written towards, I think, a, just a different demographic. It's a very indie book because I got this through Modiphius, but they're just helping to publish it. Uh, it's written by uh, a company, Erukana Media, uh, and writer uh, Frederico E. Sons. Uh, uh, doing all the writing here. And this does really come off as like an indie title. And it does come off as a book that was written for an indie 
game audience who are really into storytelling games above all other kinds of games. It is not now that has gotten, you know, a bigger publisher and a nice book and packaging has been sent out. It's ending on store shelves and being put into hands of people that might not have even been the target when it was first put out. And it it would need a, a page at the front of the book to be like, what have you got in your hands? This is what it is, and this is what it's not going to be. Uh, would would have been would have been very helpful. So Nibiru, as we have been talking about, is a colossal space station, uh, home to millions of humans. It has been home to these humans for thousands of years, and. The concept here of Nibiru is trying to determine what would humanity look like and talk like and act like if they, if their civilization were to grow up in an artificial environment where there is no sky, where there is no nature, where uh, there is flora and fauna in Nibiru, but it's all bioelectric and kind of worked itself into the ecosystem of a space station. So it helps to generate its oxygen and to move water around and uh, and all of that. But it's, it's more algae and weird animals that uh, interact with the electronics of the station in a way that humanity is unable to. And this station provides for the humans air, water, food, heat, gravity, and is split up into these different civilizations, these little city-states in areas that they call vaults, these big spheres inside the station that are connected by water pipes and air conduits and electrical conduits, and they have inside them these huge cities. Think like Midgar from Final Fantasy VII, these huge, big metal disc cities inside these sphere vaults uh, is, is where these humans live. And they have high sci-fi technology, like a, like an internet network, but they're all self-contained within these vaults. So when you go to another vault, you're literally going to another civilized, like to another society that might have its own way of life and language and economy and expectations and traditions. So humans have lived here in Nibiru They track their time differently, obviously, because there's no sun and there's no day-night cycle. So they track it by the ebbs and flows of the energy in Nibiru. And one of those, uh, a cycle, is equivalent to like three months on Earth. And then there's this other term called the flicker, which is a eon in Nibiru. It's not a defined amount of time, but it is known that Nibiru has reset its power at least two other times before. And when that does, all the power in the station goes out. And humanity is kind of reduced to a handful of people. And then the power turns back on and they start all over again. And this has happened before, and it might happen again. So in these vaults, the ones that are closest to the core of Nibiru, Nibiru itself is a disc-shaped station, slowly spinning and it's that spin is what's generating the gravity that makes life on this station comfortable for the humans living on it. So if you live in the close to the core, close to the center of that disk in these vaults, you have Earth-like 
gravity. Now, they don't know it's called Earth-like because they don't know what Earth is, but I'm just saying that for you as a player. Uh, they, uh, they have Earth-like gravity and heat and water and food. The ones who live very close to the core actually have less than Earth gravity, and they grow up to be very tall and slender, and, but their metabolisms are also different. So they don't need to eat as much food as, as the others that are more in that Goldilocks part of, of Nibiru. And then the further out you go, the heavier gravity becomes. This is one of the fun things that really break flat earthers is if the earth was actually a disk and gravity was being uh, generated by the spin of that disk, then the further to the edge of that disk you get, the heavier gravity becomes, the heavier its influence becomes. So as humanity began moving out to the edges of Nibiru, Gravity began to take its toll on them. They have a word for this. I think it's called kabadu, and it's the world's punishment. And they discovered these vast shafts that they could descend into underneath their vaults that led further out into the catacombs of Nibiru, which found other vaults that were out there, vaults that weren't necessarily even powered up, vaults that had been damaged or had different civilizations that had lived in them before this cycle of humanity uh, was living there. And they moved out from Antumbra, near the core, to Penumbra, where they uh, uh, began more like settlers going out into the frontiers. Uh, and while they're out there, gravity having its toll on them, they don't live as long, they need more food, they don't grow as tall, their physiology begins to change. And they start creating a new society with new traditions and new words. And uh, it's a little bit like Earth and the Belters in the Expanse, uh, now that I think about it. And uh, they're dependent on the supplies sent to them from the core because not all of these vaults generate food and water for them. Uh, and finding or air. Ele- or air and they need yeah. and they need to find electricity and sources of power in some cases some of these vaults are underneath the water of a giant reservoir and as the water is coming through the cracks of the vault they've created hydroelectric generators to generate local electricity for them uh, so that uh, they can have a semblance of the luxury of life that the core vaults have then when you go beyond penumbra to umbra out to the 2G line. There's no settlements out here now. There's just fools and vagabonds who are out on the edges of society where gravity is so strong, your metabolism will break down. Your brain won't be able to supply enough blood and oxygen uh, or your body won't be able to supply enough blood and oxygen to your brain. And uh, this is like going to the death zone of Everest, uh, but you're going deeper and deeper into the gravity of Nibiru as you go further to the edge. We don't know exactly how far to the edge Nibiru goes. Humanity can only make it to the 2G line, but we know by sending out machines and through other means that we're going to talk about in a minute that two-thirds of Nibiru are completely unreachable to any human. And that brings up bigger questions. What is Nibiru? Who built Nibiru? What built Nibiru? Is it built for humans? Because parts of it, when you're in close to the core, almost seem tailor-made to humanity. But the further out you go, the more alien and inhospitable and strange everything becomes makes you wonder what's going on. When does Nibiru take place? The book is completely silent on this. I don't know what or when or where Nibiru is. How did humans 
end up here. It does seem to be connected to our world in some way, which again, we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but the book is silent. The whole point is for you as your group to help answer some of those questions. For me, I suspect Nibiru could be a generational ship on a million-year journey to a distant star, and generations of humans are living on this station. They don't need to be told why, because they're not going to be the ones to arrive at their destination, maybe not for another dozen or more of those flickers that I mentioned about before they even get there. So the station just needs to keep enough humans alive and genetically viable when they arrive at their planet. Uh, and so the systems are in place to help kind of um, shuttle these humans uh, uh, to keep them alive uh, for the million year journey to a distant star and, and, and over the centuries and millennia, the original purpose of Nibiru has long been lost, but Nibiru is kind of too big for that. So maybe it was built by aliens. And this is just a station where all of the abducted humans through history have ended up. And Nibiru could be happening right now in the present day and orbiting our solar system, like the supposed planet nine. And it's orbiting out in the edges of our solar system, watching Earth, picking people up every now and then and dropping them into Nibiru from parts unknown. And that the people of Nibiru are actually the people descended from ancient history, uh, from uh, cities like where Gilgamesh would have been from with Uruk or from from the stories from like three, four, five thousand years ago. Um, maybe that's uh, who populate Nibiru. Um the game is not going to answer those questions for you. Uh, you as the players are going to answer those questions to each other as you begin to uncover your memories. And before I get into that next bit, what were some of the bits about the setting of Nibiru? Because I know, Velvet, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. There were some bits about the setting that really uh, struck you. Um, so I'll give you a moment here to, to talk a bit about where this game takes place. Thank you. Uh, I agree with you that the system itself is very agnostic about the whether this is happening in our in our universe, some other universe, if it's human designed, if it's alien designed. And I love that it doesn't even seek to answer those questions as a starting point or an ending point for your playtime within this reality. Uh, I love that there is that mixture between the feudalism that we understand, the capitalism, the all the political dynamics, but then there are these ultra alien realities like beyond the 2G world. So when you first told me about this game, uh, it wasn't the amnesiac aspect of the Vagabonds that caught me. It was the fact that there's all these all of these unanswerable questions that you can explore along any of those uh, play genres that, that we've played before. The one that struck me as I was going through this and trying to figure out where I fit in this, uh, I like the different umbras, but it really was, it was the drowned lands, I think they were called. And and that is the worlds, the, the vaults that existed uh, out of the, uh, the main political system. They were the settlers, as you called them, and they were, they were just trying to survive out here, but uh, they were dependent on back home 
but they were discovering things like the the liquid was suspended in the air in this haunting fashion and that it was the description of that vault that made me go oh like i i like how alien this is and yet there is a respect for gravity so there's a respect for science so you don't you can go down the fantastic and the the um superstitious or, or the spiritual or the religious or you can go into the magical or you can like there are so the many flooded countries things. that's what it was called the flooded yes the, the flooded, flooded countries. countries thank you uh yeah there there are so many ways that you could engage with this environment and the folklore and the history and the people and all of the solutions you've had to come up with to survive in this world or in this small portion of the world that finally got me on board with, I do want to explore this uh, and I will just have to find ways for myself to engage with all of the note-taking that is asked of us. Yeah. Um, so so in terms of the environments, I, I liked a lot of them. I liked, uh, there were moments where I felt, oh, this is very cyberpunk. Oh, this is very, actually there was one point uh, when I was reading about, uh, Umbra, Umbra and, is where the drowned, where the flooded countries are. Yeah, uh, but uh, which is the one that is under the core? Yeah, that's the uh, the uh, under the core. I think is Antumbra is uh, right. Uh, so so, that, so, so there's, it, there's in the center uh, where where the 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 halves all live. Yes, uh, moving from moving from layer to layer reminded me a little bit of Spire. Yeah. It really did. But like if Spire had like 17 other Spires all around it. Absolutely. This was just one of them. Uh, and also you you had this sense of this is how the world is. I know that there's a world outside the Spire. I know that the, you know, the upper echelons, I know that, you know, the dark elves have been supplanted by the other elves. Like there's a system where it's, I understand this. Whereas in Nibiru, you're going, Okay, I don't understand this. I, th that there's there's a caste system. Okay, I mean other games have had that, like Spire, but all, like how much you have been shaped by the environment, not because people forced you to be in that environment. Yeah, the core the core vaults uh, in the chapter from the core we hail. It it really was making me think a lot of Spire, uh, but in the way that like Spire does a lot of its. Um, descriptions of its place reminded me a little bit closer to more like Terry Pratchett's Discworld in that mm. it was kind of, there were moments of levity and absurdity peppered in through the spire that was done for laughs, which makes sense because yeah. Grant Howitt is a very funny creator and he was involved in paranoia and some of his one page RPGs are just very, very funny. But the, um, uh, this is like that, but with all the humor kind of <laughs> intentionally stripped away. Uh, but where each vault, could be an entire game you play in. You might never leave uh, yeah. uh, the you know if you if you're playing in Nineveh or if you're playing in Asher, you may never leave that vault, and you could just hear about all the other vaults because those cities are so full of, of of storytelling for that, where you could get involved into the local politics and what you were talking about of like being out beyond the two G line and uncovering the mysteries of Nibiru and what built it and where it is when it is. Um, that might be what your play group is into, or maybe you're more interested in the 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 core city states 
and their interactions with each other and uh how tarsus uh, uh is 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 setting all these settlers out to penumbra while asher tries to hold on to the traditional ways of life while nineveh uh known as the city of lights ruled by the complex ai europa uh tries to instill its more atheistic view on the other city states of nibiru and 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 because these are humans that have evolved inside of a space station so they have spirituality about what nibiru is some of them uh with the air conduits uh they go to tarsus to hear the air move through the giant chasm that they discovered uh, an ascendant as they called it that 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 goes deep down into the heavier sections uh, uh the uh, the edges uh, away from the core uh, because when you go down, you go out, right, in the disc. And so the uh, as as they as they descend, they can hear the air flowing through um, the. Uh, uh, oh, I can't remember what the name of that big big tunnel was called. The Taurus, and they yeah. listen to the wind of the Taurus to hear the voice of Nibiru. And you have all of these cultists that are claims that they can hear what Nibiru is speaking to them. And and so they create this uh this religion around Nibiru of uh these these um these beings that built this place for humanity to survive. But because of humans' original sin, they cannot consume electricity like the animals <laughs> that we see in this station. And so because humans can't consume electricity, they are sinful and must atone through suffering to be able to be uh, reintroduced into the ecosystem of Nibiru so they can live in communion with Nibiru. And it's so that's where the game starts to feel like Dune and not like The Expanse where now we're getting into such this high sci-fi but also this like kind of ancient world understanding of the world around them that Mm -hmm. there are AI in Nibiru that will teach humans the mechanics of Nibiru and how to actually work it. And some of them are chased away as heretics and some of them like in the city-state of Nineveh the AI is its supreme ruler Europa is the president of Nineveh and and controls it no human is in control of Nineveh it it controls all news in and out and 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 how you live and the jobs you get and it plays a little bit like paranoia with our friend the computer and uh and 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 all of these game styles are right next to each other and and it really in your session zero with your group talk about what story are you interested in doing because if none of those cities are interesting to you then like like star wars you don't have to go to coruscant you can go out to Tatooine and you can go to Penumbra you can go to these more settlement vaults where where resources are scarce and uh and 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 so you don't have as much time to uh debate with the nature of life with some of these other people because you're all just trying to survive to the next day and so and so maybe that's the game you want to be playing. And you can look to those city-states as a bunch of people living up in their ivory tower and treat the core worlds the way in when we played Spire, the drow treated the high elves. So these just these aliens that are a little bit taller and live a little bit longer and don't need as much food and don't understand what life is like for the humans who live out here. And uh, Or maybe you're not interested in city life anywhere and you really just want to go out into the dark and you really want to just 
face Nibiru head on and 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 find the the creatures and the machines and the the the, the alien landscapes that wait out there in the places where humans can't survive. Uh, and uh, also, also is there is an option to be part of the machine, like to be one of the rogue AI mm-hmm. and, and maybe- to connect. Like to connect from that side, as opposed—I mean—and and you're still a player character, obviously, but you're you're trying to discover it not from a how do I how does a human survive in this, but how how is an AI? How am I connected to all of this? And I do really appreciate, and that's a really good uh, a segue into the, talking about the Vega Bonds. Uh, before I dis, uh, leave from that, I will say in the book they give such wonderful backstories on all of the vaults and there's like 15 or 20 different locations with backstories that you can read about. And then they take one from each of the sections of, of Antumbra, Penumbra and Umbra from the core to the middle to the edge as gravity gets heavier. Uh, and, and they give you like a breakdown of what that city looks like. So you see the city that has a big water wheel where the water is pouring down from the ceiling to power its, its, its electricity. See another one that looks more like, like Midgar, as I mentioned from Final Fantasy seven, this big Metal city disc, uh, where where hundreds of thousands of humans live their day to day lives there, and they give you places where you can you know lots of story prompts throughout the book of why are you here, what are you looking for while you're here, who can you meet, and it keeps dropping wonderful little story prompts for the GM if you're looking for hooks to explain what you're doing while you're here as you're if you're staying for a while if you're passing through, and and it it, it really. Um, it really gives you a lot of inspiration if you're if you're someone who's who, who might be worried about writing an original story set in this world. As we mentioned, yeah, you can have a, a very personal connection to the machines or to the animals or to the other people of this world, or even a connection to our world here on Earth, uh, depending on the vagabonds you play. So how does how does the players fit into Nibiru? Now that we know kind of a little bit about what Nibiru is, where does the game come in? Because again, this is a tabletop RPG. Uh, the characters that you are playing are called the Vegabonds, and they're a group of people that are somewhat acknowledged, but mostly ignored or, or even like outwardly people act like they don't really exist. Um, other humans, and they are human, the game is very clear about that they are human through and through, uh, who have no memory of who they are and where they came from. And they gain their memories by playing the game using a system that the game has created called the memos system. So your character sheet, having a look at it here, uh, you really start with only two stats, body and mind. And your body and mind stat are are, are chosen early on uh, from where you begin your place in the world. Uh, And that's your stable zone. So your, your body and mind begin at stable stat. That's it. Your character creation is done now. And <laughs> you haven't written anything down. Uh, as you move coreward or away from the core, as gravity changes its effect on you, it changes its effect on your body and on your mental capacity because it's also tracking a little bit of your sanity. Because if your brain isn't getting enough blood, you're not going to be thinking nearly as clearly. And so your body becomes unstable as you move both towards the core and away from the core as gravity gets heavier and lighter on its effect on you. And after a full session, you will return to being stable again. So if you're moving very quickly, like a diver going into the ocean, it's going to hurt you. It's going to maybe kill you. 
But if you progress gradually to the edges of Nibiru, it will you will adjust over time. Now, that doesn't account for when you go past the 2G line because there is just a point where the human body cannot survive. But you can get out to close to the edge and then spend some time and get back to being stable again. So that's kind of the most RPG-y thing when it comes to stats that the game is tracking. Everything else in your character sheet is blank. Uh, you have uh, a bunch of skills, that, like a bunch of lines on the sheet for skills that are empty, notes and belongings that are empty. You come up with a name for yourself and your habitat. And the habitat is probably the most consequential choice you will make in character creation. So the Vagabonds have no memory. But you're getting your memories back. And at the very beginning, before you even uh, play, you'll probably have an opportunity to write your first memory down. And where you're coming from is where the game goes from being a weird world building, kind of like Dune, kind of like the Expanse sci-fi exploration, to this really weird, in some cases, nightmare fuel, bizarre story. One of the things I appreciated because this is an independent production uh, originally is that they actually brought on a mental health advisor and they have right in in this that uh, while they have this mental health stat, if as a group you don't want to deep dive into some of these, you know, either that boundary crossing or whatever, like if there's an area that you're like, oh, I can't go there, they give you a simplified version. Of yeah, the there is there is a track. there is a uh, there is a page where as you take mental damage, you can also take on um, different stressors and um, uh, degrading mental health. Uh, that that will affect your character, and if you're if you're if there's anyone at your table who's just not going to be comfortable with that, uh, it can just be um, you can just play with the body stat, and you'll still get everything from the game covered. Uh, the 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 uh, it was really interesting. Yeah, the mind and the mental health aspects of the game are both optional, and then there's also a complex and a simplified version of that where it could just be a health bar where you're just going from shaken, stressed to no longer playable and you don't have to worry about also picking up there's a there's this section on uh uh where you're hearing voices or you're not sleeping right or you're starting to hallucinate um you don't you with with dealing with depression and anxiety and paranoia uh and those are not required uh and i thought it was written very well uh and yeah. and, and and done with uh with a with degree of empathy to uh to players and and of course there's there's a whole section of the book here dedicated to part of your section zero is you know uh we've mentioned on the show before having a discussion about safety tools uh with the x card having lines of veils because this is a game as we're after we talk about characters here we're going to talk a little bit about mechanics um the players have the ability to influence the story and the world around them with a currency called influence points and because of that the responsibility isn't entire like in a game of Dungeons and Dragons, there's a lot more responsibility on the GM to play the game safely with their players in a way that the players aren't always going to have that much agency to break safety of the table. Like they always can if they try really hard, but it's not the same level of responsibilities you have when you're also telling the world building and, and introducing 
concepts and and details into the world around you because every player has that ability at this table it really does stress uh the importance of having safety mechanics at your table because someone might introduce a new concept or a new topic or a new location or a new situation that could be harmful to another player at that table and so having the x card is helpful but also having uh lines and veils where you can determine in advance that i am not okay with themes of x being introduced into this game and so then it just doesn't get brought up and so we're not going to deal with um with 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 certain triggers uh that that other players might object to and i've seen games in the past where it might be drug use or it might be uh uh, conversations on on depression or suicide and so having having that in advance negotiated with your players in this game would be paramount more than uh other games that we have we have tackled on this show absolutely and that's why i wanted to bring it up here because you had you had just finished saying uh these memories could be like um nightmare fueled and yeah i mean our imaginations it is very easy for us to go down like very twisted routes and this game allows for that and you know kind of leans into it a little it's really interesting so when you're when you're creating like your your character backstory as you're imagining where did my character come from what's going on you can just determine in the game that that's real that that is like as as you're letting your imagination run wild you can just run with it so so before I get into the exact habitats how how the story actually plays out so you got your character how do you create your new memories so every game you get one or two memory points that you can spend as a player and you earn memory points through role playing uh, the, the 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 gm can hand them out both influence and memory points uh, that are used differently influence points are used to affect dice rolls as well as also to um introduce characters to scenes and change details of the world around them it allows them to basically put on the the gm gloves and 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 manipulate the game themselves uh, memory points are uh to manipulate their players now it can also be used when you use them to guarantee a dice roll so whenever you roll the dice this game is very simple three d4s d4s of all sizes uh, and you roll three d4s and you um you're looking for one four and if you get one of those three die show up as a four, then you succeed at your role. Uh, now, early on, you don't have any skills. So how do you get those skills? If you have memory points and you roll the die, you can then declare, I am using a memory point to associate this die roll now with a memory that I have that I am going to declare right now in this moment. And you don't have to get into full details but you can just give a quick flashback of what happens here so in the book it's got a scene of someone uh, hitting an animal with what looks like a pipe over their head and then right behind them is a flashback of them swinging a baseball bat and so now they have the skill of athleticism or swinging a bat or something like how 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 specific you want to get and depending on how many memory points you spend depends on the modifier you now have permanently to that skill that you have associated with. And then you write down that memory. And later, when you've got time, you flesh out a couple more lines on what that memory was to you. So swinging a baseball bat is the flashback. And then later, you can go and actually write that memory down of being at the big game and hitting the home run and the crowd goes wild. I don't know. It sounds a little cheesy, but that could be your memory. And so the uh, so now you've got this new skill that every time you go to swing 
that pipe or you go to hit something uh, or you use your athleticism, depending how you defined it, you now have a permanent bonus on that skill. And the longer you play, the more memory points you get and you keep spending them on your action rolls. You can also choose to declare a negative memory and fail the die roll. And for each points you take against the skill, you will be given memory points to spend in the future. So you can also choose to fail a roll and take uh, uh, negative skills. Uh, so maybe instead of you hitting that baseball, you struck out and you lost the game and that's now a bad memory. Oh, and now you've got a negative to that athleticism and you're really bad at what you do. And so that, that, that the game plays out with that. But what's fun for me is I my mind wanders with my characters all the time where I'm thinking of their backstories and it never comes up in the game. Well, this is as much a game about exploring forward in time as well as going back and declaring your character's origin stories as you're playing through the game. And so, uh, so it's, 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 it seems like a very simple system, which also seems quite uh, daunting in that there's a lot of pressure for you to come up with a story of your character and declare that. But again, you've got your die roll as prompts, right? You can uh, look at what you're doing and be like, well, what kind of memory? You don't have to necessarily think about right now in advance how they all stitch together and be perfect. The game says like you can just discover as you're playing it or you can have a perfectly fleshed out concept of your character that you will have in your mind that you can start to share in piecemeal as you play the game. Both strategies are perfectly valid. And the... um and then the other, the only other way you get those memories is if you roll those three die and all three of them come up as a four, that is an automatic success and an automatic positive memory that you must now associate and write down because you were just so good. It just created this flashback. Same thing happens if you roll all ones. Uh, you always, you, you get a negative memory from that. So there's a few times where you will get a memory that is a little bit out of your control because this character is remembering things they might you, you as a player didn't consider would be important to them. So it's it's interesting the way that that plays out. So that's how those mechanics work. And I I, I just want to reiterate what you said earlier that as a group coming together deciding what kind of stories you want to tell, you also need to know the dynamic of your group. If you have somebody who just wants to go and beat on things, this like you like you have to negotiate how you keep them engaged uh, for the people who truly just want to be storytellers for that one moment and really deep dive, explore on the, the feeling, the, how the feelings changed about that memory. And now what do you know? And if you're, like, yeah, if you're a play group that really likes combat mechanics, this might not be the game for you. This is a game that is very much like the dies are very light. You might go through a lot without ever rolling the die. It is very free form. It is very open to telling stories. There is yeah. some allowance to allow for that combat nuance. That's why they left the skills blank so that you could write combat as your skill or you could write knife, gun, pipe, right? You could really get to specific weapon types if you wanted, if, if, if your character is really, it, it's not just about combat, but how they are doing said combat. In this moment, I just thought where I could see this really work is if you have a, a divided play group, uh, uh, you know, the storytellers and these action oriented and, you know, and sometimes they bleed one way or the other. But you could have you could take that storytelling group and go, OK, we're going to create this world. 
And now we're going to run the other half of the group through that world. Yeah. And then both are getting a little bit of a taste of, you know, of what they like from it. And, and they have injected themselves into this. This uh, game system reminds me of when I used to play MUDs online. And there were, there were ones that were very much D&D and you are, you're just rolling in and doing combat. And then there were the more advanced versions where you are storytelling and it is so character driven and history driven and negotiation farm. And there's a little bit of the combat, but that's not the point of it. Or, or if you were unique that there were there were spaces where you could have that freeform combat, but it wasn't the general gist of the engine. And I'll tell you, you know, I had so much fun when we played Spire. This is a game that I would consider uh, trying as an actual play on the podcast because I would play with two people at a time, just like we did with Spire, but we'd just be in different locations across Nibiru, and each group, uh, at least when we start, would be sharing the habitats, which we're about to talk to you in a second, and we could discover the memories and it would be kind of fun because I could also keep the character sheets up on the website. And as you're discovering memories, the character sheets would slowly fill in over time. So you could track the progression of the story. And there's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a fun way to keep track of your character's progression that other games don't necessarily always do very well, where I look back at all the little things we went through. Unless I was personally keeping a journal, I might not know it. This game, the journal is part of the mechanics of the game. So, uh, the, on the back of the page, as you create your characters, you you or as you create your memories in the game, you write down "I remember," and then they have eight spots on your journal sheet for these memories, and they're not very long; they're like little boxes, a couple lines each. And you you would write down your memory, and you would write down what that effect is, whether it's positive or negative, to the skill that you've defined. When you fill in that journal sheet and you have eight memories, you unlock the ability for a revelation, and this is where the game gets very supernatural. Some of these revelations can be you touch a character and you steal a memory from them or you can leave your memories in a bottle that you can drink later this allows people to share memories among themselves among the other vagabonds uh you can create uh passive and active revelations that are available they've got a bunch uh, of options in the book this is one thing where they actually do list out a couple of uh, about a dozen or so different revelations that you can choose you get a revelation for every sheet on your journal that you fill in so when you're done with your eight memories you print out a new journal sheet you add that to your to your character sheet and you keep adding and adding and adding and getting more revelations as you play so what kind of memories you're unlocking determines the habitat that you choose at character creation. It's the one very consequential choice you're going to have early on that's going to define the tone of your character and a lot of the motivations you're going to have through the game. So the five locations they have are the machine, Bright Town, the Dreamlands, the wild and the dreadlands and the dreadlands was the one that i was saying is like nightmare literally nightmare fuel because of a nightmare parasite uh that 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 exists in this world um so the machine the first one they mentioned your memories are comprised of the records of defunct ais when you create your character, the very first memory you write down will be first transmission the very first memory that this artificial intelligence had somewhere out in Nibiru. It allows you to 
have memories from places where humans might not have access to. And as a player, you can start answering those mysteries of Nibiru. Somehow, as a human, all of these AI memories are in you. Where did you come from? You just show up like all the other vagabonds without memory, without an origin. Uh, those first days are very vulnerable. They say like uh, many vagabonds don't survive their first months because they have no memory and 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 they just die out in the biru, out in the dark, uh, from from any number of reasons. And as your memories began to return, you realizing that none of your memories are human memories. They're AI. When you fill in your journal sheet, like I just mentioned, and you choose your revelation, that last memory is always a final transmission, the last memory that that AI had before it became defunct or went rogue. Your next journal sheet will now be an entirely new AI concept. So you're not just even getting memories from a single AI. You're receiving memories from many different AI throughout Nibiru, somehow now surviving as a human without memories of their own. Bright Town is the human that is remembering about things that happened here on Earth. They even have a token to that they hold on to in character creation. You, you decide what that was. Maybe it's a baseball that you have in your pocket that confirms that this world was real, even if everything around you is screaming that it wasn't. But the memories you're getting are from a place with a ceiling of bright blue above you and an expanse of light going in all directions. It's Earth present day earth it even <laughs> suggests and you're remembering this world and memories of your own and it allows for these very colorful landscapes that have no resemblance to nibiru and you're very much a fish out of water if you're playing someone from bright town the dreamland vagabond is remembering a compilation of memories from other humans dreams and when you create your character, you uh, find an NPC and you roll dice to find your dream link with them. The number that you roll on the dice determines how many memories you are going to share with them. It might be anywhere between three to seven, right? And so as you uh, l discover all those memories and unlock all those memories through play, when you are finished collecting all the memories from that dream link, you can return to that person and share their memories back to them because there's this pathogen that seems to be moving, a phenomena that is stealing memories from people and, and downloading them into these vagabonds. And so you can return those memories and share those memories to that NPC. And for every memory you return to the NPC you dreamed of, uh, you'll receive memory points to spend in the future. The wild habitat is the memories you are recovering are from animals in Nibiru. So it's very similar to the machine, except this is of the fauna of Nibiru, the animals that feed off of the electricity uh, in Nibiru. These animals can reach all of the sections of Nibiru. I mentioned that two-thirds of Nibiru humans can't reach. Well, you have memories of those places. You know of all the dark, deep, corridors of Nibiru, the, the alien places, the very edge of the station. And they're all controlled by a great entity known as the Leviathan. And 
when you create your character, you can create a synapse with the Leviathan who like in moments of danger, let's say you need to lower your body temperature to survive in, in, uh, in a place where oxygen is being leaked out or heat is being lost. Uh, the Leviathan can take over and help you survive that section. All of your memories are feral. They're not human. They're animal. And so of all the other vagabonds, your character, um, while they know that they're human and can talk and, and interact with other humans, all of the memories you have of your past life are those of being an animal. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that, that can be really weird. Uh, and then the final one, the dreadlands, is the invention of a creative genius with tragedy on their mind. All of the memories you are getting back are nightmare. And they are all designed to feed a parasite known as the nightmare that's living inside of you, embedded in you. You only have memories of being in a coffin-shaped lab out on the edges of Nibiru being tortured and experimented on and 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 so in the case of Bright Town where Nibiru looks like a an oppressive claustrophobic place with no sky for someone from Dreadland the Nibiru that you see is full of hope and promise and freedom and it's a completely different so so while your memories might be terrible the experience you have in Nibiru is nothing short of elation so those five habitats create these very weird Vegabond characters. This is the part where the book was like, oh, this is not at all what I thought Nibiru was going to be like. And you, while you're exploring these vaults and exploring these sections and these societies, the story of the Vegabond is very removed in a way, from the story of Nibiru. But as you make your memories and you learn about the habitats you came from and how you, you know, the secrets of Nibiru, you can use that to change and the revelations that you end up unlocking from those memories and the skills you end up getting from those memories make you into kind of a superhuman like uh like the kind of demigods of ancient mythology that are walking among the denizens of nibiru and this might be a reason why the people of nibiru fear vagabonds and maybe even act through a code of silence you never speak of a vagabond. You never speak of their existence or acknowledge that they're real because they might come knocking at your door. And when they do, you'll be part of history and not in the good way. So that's it. That that's that's those are the vagabonds. I what I liked about it, especially how you just said it, it was very poetic. What I like is that it reinforces how alien this whole existence is and that you you yourself are alien to those around you and uh and that i'm thinking of like D, where you're having that initial conversation at with the barkeep to try and get an adventure or something and how awkward that is like this just reinforces uh of course it's awkward but it also allows for that awkwardness because your character doesn't know how to necessarily negotiate to? with that barkeep? Like how 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 do you human and you know and especially like if if you have even just one memory unlocked as you're starting, like you are processing through this whole other way of thinking that they do not and could not access because they're not you, thankfully. Yeah, uh, and, and even at the brightest angle of this like being super chipper in this world that is not is is just i mean that's fun 
One of the, one of the interesting things they suggest is when you're choosing your habitats with your play group. Again, why you should be playing together when you're doing your session zero as a group is choose the same habitats so that if you're all or at least some of you are sharing a habitat, then as you're creating memories, you can stitch memories together. You can fill in the gaps of the other person because you come from the same place. Maybe from Brighttown, you both came from the same place on Earth. Maybe in the machine, you were both AIs uh, working together in the same facility or the wilds, you were part of the same pack of animals. And so you are able to uh, share and bounce ideas off of each other and yes and your own memories uh it, it, which which you know which again can help you if you're feeling oh well, I can't come up with all this stuff on my own well it's it's overwhelming i mean being a stranger in a strange land is one thing uh it, but having most people in that world shun you to some extent or or fear you or to like that conflict level it's always better to start on the same side with your partners <laughs> Than, than not. And, and even if you do come from the exact same place, you're still going to have a differing perspective on it. But, it, but at least you're in the same realm initially and, and speaking the same language a little bit. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that the us against the world in this case really plays well. Um, so that you're not having to spend like session 0.1 with each other going, wait, what? <laughs> so you mentioned Velvet you created a concept of your own after all. Yeah. So what what tell introduce me to your to your vagabond. I uh, I I will preface this the way that I do every session zero and that is I wanted to try to play something that I haven't played before and in this environment that's pretty easy because i mean there there is no down on this there's no uh, no sense of you know direction in a lot of these so you just kind of have to go with like what feels right and what do what do you want to explore mm -hmm. so i want to introduce you to glyph and i chose that name because like this universe that had that had meaning imbued to it at one point but now time has passed and there's not necessarily that connection to it anymore you can still feel the power of it but you don't know it yourself so i i chose the name first and then i went well what is it that's different from what i normally play normally i play somebody who is very professional they are an expert in some way so i went well what's what feels like the opposite to that i'm a skittish child-sized human I'm always uh, able to tuck away into a, a nook or a cranny. I prefer, I prefer the walls to the ground when things get too violent. I, I'm resilient, but I'm also seemingly sickly, especially when I begrudgingly consume the local fungi. I, I'm quiet. I, I prefer to sign. But when I do speak, there is a noticeable sing-song pattern to my speech. I have a flawless sense of direction, even in the dark, for any of the places that I've been in the last few lapses. I have a vague memory of something that way, but I'm unsure what lays there. And the memory that I have uh, that inspired some of this was spinning, spinning, floating down, whirlpool, whirlpool, round and round, now a home a new home, swim away. 
So I created all that before I got into the hat reading about the habit. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm, and again, I found this with other games where I go. But that's wonderful. Oh, like I, Glyph as a concept is is perfect. Yeah. But now we get to discover what now as Glyph is starting to learn about themselves, then they yeah. start remembering about themselves. And and they say like vagabonds could live for years in Nibiru just as an amnesiac. And then one day mm-hmm. a memory returns to them and they realize that they're yeah. more, much more than they thought they were. So what kind of memories is Glyph learning? So, so I, I didn't answer that there. So I'll have to answer that uh, here. And that is that I used to have a home, but I was the one sent out to find new safe routes, new safe vaults. Uh, so we needed to move. There was a sense of urgency of we needed to move from where we were to where we can be again. Because one of the things uh, I like about Glyph, if you don't mind, is yeah. maybe we don't need to know about Glyph's past. Maybe Glyph's habitat is of the dreamland. So that the memories that Glyph is learning end up being of the people that have been around Glyph and helping Glyph with their new life. And they start remembering their memories. And Glyph's memories are actually those of the community around them that have helped make Glyph anew. So I like that. But what I will say is then I read the habitats and I went mm. and and you were talking about how they have story prompts throughout with yes. the, the various faults, etc. They also have these prompts and these mini stories written in uh, into the habitats. Mm. And uh, and to the type of vagabond. So when I read the one for the wild, oh, and it talked about skittering and and slinking through, and I went, oh, that. Well, I mean, that's literally what I just finished writing. Yeah. And and immediately I thought, I mean, I, I wrote the memory is is much more like a goldfish or something mm-hmm. or, or salmon have trying to find its way back to its original home. Uh, but I also got this like very alien arachnid feeling to it. Cool. Yeah. So, so you're describing the bureau through the eyes of an animal or a creature yeah. that has lived in the conduits of Nibiru. Right. And, and as you said, because they have memories from beyond 2G, I'm a human now, mm-hmm. but that I'm experiencing are, I mean, they're alien to anything that I can, I can process. So I'm having to, my mind is creating these other metaphors to try and figure out like, like maybe I'm one of those squiddies from the matrix or, yeah. you know what I mean? Maybe well, and, so- and they, they suggest in the world building that all of the creatures in Nibiru are controlled by the Leviathan, a, 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 an entity out in the, in the farthest reaches of Nibiru. Uh, humans have never seen the Leviathan. The Leviathan yeah is in contact with you if you're from the wild but because you are human it's unable to control you the way it can control the creatures of nibiru and so uh your connection to the vega to to the leviathan is um is very interesting and unique each time but you can yeah. you can through a special role give control to the to the leviathan uh, in the you can give over your speech or motor or sense control to the leviathan 
who will then pursue their own agenda through the scene. But you can mm-hmm. offer like, I need you to help me survive. I'm in danger and I'm not going to make it out on my own. And you can give yourself to the Leviathan. The Leviathan will get you out of it. Yeah. And, in their and, own and, way. Like when, I, when I was starting to read into this, it was talking about like some of your plus roles. And I thought, you know, like, again, I, I didn't prepare for this. I did, wasn't thinking of this, but the alignment to it that they had, that the system was robust enough for it to fit this concept yeah, that I had. The fact really that interesting. it's a plus one to sneaking and forcing doors and empathy. And then, as you say, like having the Leviathan take over my voice. Well, I wrote about not speaking a lot, but when I do, it's suddenly this other kind of sound. So Leviathan like, has just been helping you, you know, in those early taking your first steps as a human. And yeah. what is it that turned the memories of an animal in Nibiru into a human without their memories? We don't know how the Vagabonds exist. We know that they're human, but in a way that's like in Battlestar Galactica, the Cylons were human now, right? Like what, what is it that is, is something creating these Vagabonds? Is this actually the purpose of Nibiru? Are all of the humans actually human or are they just descendants of this Vagabond inception that that keeps happening that these machines are still working like like the 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 the, the machinations are still happening um i don't know the book doesn't tell us let's play and find <laughs> out uh and and one of the things that says every time you give your 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 vagabond over to the leviathan you uh, have a moment of tranquility and you're struck by memories of your past you gain a memory point at the end of every session that you have been in synapse with during the leviathan yeah so it's a it's a good you know motivation to continue to commune with Leviathan as often as you can. I, uh, I, I, the rule book continues to reinforce that, Hey, you're human. So, you know, you're human, you're human. Uh, but I, I kind of feel like it's that moment in the fly where Jeff Goldblum's characters, it, it's like, the, it's like, it doesn't have a taste for human yet. And, and so it has, he has to program it to understand what human. And so I think it's like, we're not human. Come on. <laughs> but if but you were if you were to put me on an autopsy and dissect me, I have all of the biological markers of being human. But but again, it brings up this whole idea in the same way that like in Nibiru, what does humanity look like when they evolve in a place without a sky? What yeah. is a human like if they don't have the memories of being human? Are they still human? What or what is, is what is it to be human? I mean, we call Earth Earth because <laughs> for well, no real good reason, but we call it Earth. Is there another place where the aliens call that Earth? That's what their normal right? is. And, and, and that's default perspective. And it's this idea of like, if all of my memories are from being an AI, am I still a human? Well, yes, because we've all can agree that if I as a human lost all of my memories, I would yeah. still be human, right? That doesn't. Yes. That doesn't remove. But so then if you start to place memories that are not of human origin into that human that has no memories, do they now stop being human? No. But they're but but are they now also something else? And it's well, also, that's some it, good. That's some deep sci fi nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, but it's also like deep sci-fi religious uh, nonsense and yeah. and spirituality yeah. and and you know origin building and and discovery and like it it opens the door to all of that being possible if you want to. 
And uh, so, so anyway, I mean, that's, that's how I built Glyph and it, it, uh, it helped me to invest in this rule set in a way that very initially I was having some difficulty getting into because just because of the way it was laid out, because there wasn't that initial like uh, cheat, cheat. Yeah. Cheat. It takes a while for the, before the shoe drops. So, so for me, it was, oh, I have to do all of this preparatory reading before I decide if I want to read it. Okay. And then, yeah, I was totally like, oh, I want to learn more about this human, for lack of a, a better word, that has access to this otherworldly, for them, uh, reality. If you're going to be the GM on this game, you do have to read the book beginning to end. But I'm hoping mm. that if you're going to be a player in this game, you could just listen to this hour with Velvet and I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, then, and then just and then just skip to chapter Vagabond and, and read the 20 pages you need to. Uh, listening to yours, I was actually thinking of a concept of my own. So this is a little bit more improvised. But my character, taken from a list here of, of example names, was Panna Etu, and it was funny. You and I always seem to have characters that are quite in sync with each other. Um, yes. My habitat, I decided to pick the habitat first, was going to be the machine. I really think that's cool. Uh, every time I start a new journal entry, I'm now starting a new character backstory. But the what happened with Pana Etu, before they even knew that they were a vagabond, before they even realized that the memories that they were going to learn were of uh, artificial intelligence origin, um, they their first memory as a vagabond is crawling in the dark and uh, crawling through... Um, uh, corridors of cables and and steel and wires, and lost in a, in a maze, uh, unable to see, uh, hear, um, no water, no food, and just before they perished from the exposure, uh, uh, heavy under the weight, they were rescued by two humans out exploring just beyond the two G line, and brought into one of the flooded country vaults where they were brought back uh, the flooded countries sleep in like sensory deprivation um beds that are l submerged into water and they have like masks on their face so think like star wars back to tank and that's how they that's how they um um work through the crushing yeah. gravity of being out there in umbra and so that also allowed for uh, Panna to heal and recover. And as they began to work their way through, no one knew, you know, how did Panna show up crawling from the wrong direction towards them? Uh, they were rescued. And then slowly their memories came through of being in those corridors, except they could see the electrical conduits they could see the schematics they could hear the other voices of nibiru communicating to each other and those memories were of a maintenance uh, uh drone that flew flew through the catacombs of the edges of nibiru by what probably would be the 3g or the 4g line gravity has no effect uh, on, on on a drone such as him, and 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 moving through, it was their job to make sure that the ebbs and flows of electricity continued to you know reach their their end goals, uh, the places that they're supposed to go to, and um, yeah, and so so my first journal would be of this drone creature, 
uh, moving their way through, flying around the the, the edges of Nibiru. But my uh, but if I finish that book, that's my first transmission, my first memory. And one of the things with the machine is you also have a special rule called the lost tongue. Vagabonds of the machine have inherited the ability to comprehend an otherworldly language which resonates in the frequencies that are inaudible to most. This language is only utilized by the oldest systems of the station, strange mechanisms long lost to history that lay dormant far away in the corners of the world. Although encounters with such pieces of technology are incredibly rare, it's good to know one is, albeit partially prepared for it, when they do happen. And so it's, it might never even come up and play, but at least in yeah. my memories, it does. My memories are all in a language no one knows anymore. And, uh, uh, so that's, that's where, that's where panic comes through and, um, where your memories are that of the creatures skittering around in the darkness. Mine are of the machines that continue yeah. to operate Nibiru. Um, maybe my memories are recent. Maybe my memories are from a flicker before, uh, from 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 an earlier time in Nibiru's long and mysterious history. Uh, but uh, but neither of us were picking um, human memories. <laughs> so both of us yeah. would probably have a kinship in in that understanding because I think a spider and a drone have a lot in common in terms of their view of the world around them. So. Yeah. I, I had this thought as you started. It was like, I'm wondering if there's any correlation between these habitat types and that uh, classic D&D archetype of, oh, you're a human, oh, bright town. Oh, you're a, you know, like, is there is there a dwarf or is there a barbarian type or is there, oh, the wild. Oh, so I'm playing the druid. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> but like some of these memories for the machine is I remember grocery shopping with the master and him being attacked by a group of bad people in an alley. So in this case, the memory of the machine was that of a, of an automaton assistant in one of the probably core worlds. There's all these machines and AI that that live and operate side by side with humans in Nibiru, um, very much like droids in Star Wars. And uh, and uh, your memories just all happen to be of R2-D2 or C-3PO instead of other, other humans. And, um, and so in that case, I remember grocery shopping with the master and him being attacked by a group of bad people in an alleyway, uh, plus one to keeping your cool. And so, or, or another one was, I remember wandering off to the storage area when the master was off to play the white piano we had in the main room. One day I got lost in the melody and didn't realize the master was watching me. She smiled and asked me to return to the storage area, plus one to playing the piano. And so like, these are the things where you just, you come up with the memory and then you assign the skill or because a lot of the times these, these things will come from a die roll, like you're creating a flashback in the moment. So one example they have in the book is as you're working in the cabling uh, and you're trying to untangle the cables so you can get to the right cable to plug it into the wall to restore power to the room, whatever, you get a flashback to you doing crochet mm-hmm. and and untangling a ball of yarn or something. And uh, and so, so, so in some way, the activity you're involved in is related either visually or tactilely or, or in some way to what you're doing, uh, you can associate that causes that flashback. And then you assign a modifier to, uh, a skill that you also define when you define that memory. So it could be something like empathy, which is a very common tabletop RPG skill, or it could be something more specific like playing the piano. So that kind of reminds me a little bit of fate 
or Powered by Apocalypse games where it has you like, or or the values in Star Trek Adventures where it has you yeah. fill in those blanks yourself and it's not going to, gives you a lots and lots of examples in the book, uh, but it doesn't tell you which ones you must use. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I like that it is far more free form and it is contextual and it is, uh, I mean, it's negotiating, right? It's, it's, all, it's all of that side of role-playing and story, uh, storytelling and world-building. And so it is easy to, to recommit to it each time you come back to the table because it was your creation within this it's a subset mm-hmm. creation within this larger universe you're very going you're going to have a lot of ownership not just on your character but on the environment around you now because if i define something like a memory of that drone or memory of your creature the gm that's now part of our world and, yeah. and it's now part of that history of that world um and likewise, you get influence points, which are another currency in this game that you can spend to add details to that room. Like we walk in there and the GM might be describing the room. And then I describe using an influence point that there is a graffiti on the wall that someone has drawn using the same symbols of the language I had just remembered. Right. And now that's part of the room we're in. It's <laughs> part of like, the right? room. It's part of the room, but there's also uh, there's now instant history to that thing, and there's consequence. Yeah, because there's people that dream uh, in the flooded countries they talk about, and they dream of this world with a bright blue ceiling and expanses of skies, and they try to draw them onto the walls of their vault. So if you were a character from Bright Town and you go to that vault, you would see a group of people that are drawing in graffiti images of Earth. Mm-hmm. what is this doing in Nibiru? Like that would, that would be uh, um, an overwhelming discovery for, for a bright town vagabond to find, but to everyone else would just be like, well, that's weird art. Yeah. Yeah. Final thoughts. My final thoughts are, uh, it, it was a very steep barrier to entry into this, the concept, what they were trying to achieve with it. But then once you gave yourself permission to not worry so much about what it has to be and just soak in it, uh, I I would be willing to play this. But I also, uh, as you said, I'd be willing to play this more in in a smaller group with somebody who has done all of this legwork uh, ahead of time, all the reading. Who know and who understands how to stitch these uh, potentially disparate concepts together, and uh, and again without, without a perspective of it has to end this way. Yeah, and you would need as a GM in this world, you would need to have a meeting where you can come up with their character concepts, their habitats, maybe the first memories have a conversation about the locations of Nibiru and what's going on because there is no point in you telling them a story that they don't want to play. So if I put you in the middle of Asher at the core, but you are more interested in being out at the 2G line and discovering the mysteries of Nibiru, I am making the wrong game for you now. And so I really need to, as a GM, listen to the players at my table and we need to negotiate what game do we want to play in this because unlike a powered by apocalypse game which tends to exist very much in like a tight beam spotlight 
So it's very difficult to leave that concept of that game because if you do the game will immediately push back and break and so it's like no if we're going to play masks you are going to play in a group of teenage superheroes in this city and if you try to change any of those conditions the game falls apart nibiru is not doing that it's it's casting a very wide net in a very big world, but it's giving the option to the players to then choose what part of their world is important to them to explore, which for a GM means I could potentially play this game with multiple groups and get very, very different experiences from all of them, depending on what kind of stories they want to tell. So you would have to have a session zero with them to negotiate and help like this is the world we're playing in these are the different places what's interesting to you where do you want to go where do you want to start and then after that and after you meet the vagabonds and their concepts take the time like a week between your next session to ruminate about what it is you want to hook them in with first and then once you start if you can start on a good footing I suspect the game will snowball from there as memories begin to unfold and hopefully drama gets created from that and the characters find their own and then they will just lead you through it. As long as you can listen to them and listen to their memories, they should lead you through the rest of Nibiru. But that very first session is probably going to be the hardest one you're going to have while playing this game because it 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 takes a lot to get this engine to turn over to get it going i i I suspect but once it's going it should take off should i i would i would add in the caveat that part of that session zero has to be finding players who are willing to be active participants rather than passively going i'll go with what the group says or all like you need to actively be part of the creation of this rather than a backseat uh you know participant or or viewer of the action yeah this would be a, a really wonderful game to even play if you're with a group that plays uh, games by post and over email where you can write lots of stories because it's very much a writer's game. Um, but it is, yeah, if you're playing with players who are expecting more of a passive experience where they're going to get to sit and listen to a story being told to them and being told when to do moves, uh, this isn't the one for them. <laughs> this isn't going to work out. This is a game for players who are chomping at the bit to be involved in the story, to tell the GM what they want to do. And the GM's role is to know the world they're inhabiting and to help be like a tour guide through that world. But it's not their story to tell. I I agree with that. And I I would say I'm hearing this, but also, Justin, I think that that is your style of GM as well. So it is what I have come to expect when we do an actual play. It's that, yes, you are making sure that the rules are, are, you know, being followed that and everybody understands those. But for the most part, you're going, what do you want to accomplish? What are, what are your goals in this? And this system just naturally, it, it depends on it in a lot of ways. Your dissatisfaction with this universe is going to be as a result of your inaction in this and not being honest about what you're trying to uh, achieve as a storyteller player. And maybe that's why I've been so attracted to this game as I'm reading it. Because I the past few years, what I my best memories of being a GM have been the moments where I get to, you know, set things up, throw the players together, and then just sit back 
and watch them all just bounce off of each other. And this is a game where if you find that group and that switch flips off for them, you would have that experience happening. And that can be so rewarding. Uh, and I've played games where I have to run everything for everyone. And and it's just not it's just not where I get the most joy. I like helping to unlock the story potential of the other players at the table. And this is a game where that is literally the goal of the story, of the game, of the characters, is to unlock their stories, to find out where they came from. And my job and yours, if you're going to run the game, is to put them in positions that are going to challenge the characters to confront the memories of their past, whatever they are, so they can discover who they are and what kind of person they're going to be in the Biru going forward. We were talking before about the the optimal number of players involved, and you were saying this, you know, from two to, two to six, uh, you know, I was thinking of it as well, if you really wanted to, you could make this a one-person prompt and just, you know, and and focus on the different styles of Vagabond, the different vaults. Like, you could do that for yourself if you're looking to get, in, get into writing in one of these genres because there are so many different, uh, you know, different locations and different um, effects that, and histories that happen there. If you were just starting out for yourself and you're like, I... It, Mm, I'll put this into game terms. If you were looking to start to DM, this might be a system that would give you that sense of what does it feel like to help your players discover their characters, uh, backstories, and futures. Yeah, I mean, it is like if you don't have a play group and you're looking for a game to play by yourself, this is a journal entry RPG. And... You just could take your time with those memories as you explore on your own through through Nibiru. And when yeah. I said two players too, I was also talking just like even a GM and a player. There's only yes. two of you. Uh, this could work very well as well um, as just an exploration and and writing exercise between that. Um, this does seem like a game that would benefit from a smaller group of invested players rather than a larger group, only because if everyone is as invested as I would want them to be, at some point, once you get to like four or five or even six players, oh my goodness, there's just no time left for everyone to invest the same amount of energy in a single session that um, you would not have an opportunity for everyone to get a chance to unlock and really explore what those memories are without it being at the expense of everyone else at the table. Whereas if there's only two or three other people at the table with you, they can join you in learning those memories without it feeling like you're robbing them of their own story. Um, once you get to five and uh, at six players, I can't even see how it would be possible. In yeah. four hours, you just won't, you will just have a player at the table who won't do anything and they're going to have a, a rotten time. So if you, if you had six people who wanted to play with you to run Nibiru, I would do two groups <laughs> that quickly. <laughs> yeah. And because it's journal entries, you can share these memories with the other groups. Hell, if some of you are playing Dreamland Vagabonds, you could be sharing your memories with each other through your dreams. And that could be part of the story. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it, it, this could be, 
I could see the same format I used for Spire where we had like a group of like seven or eight people, but we were doing them in groups of six or, or two at a time. Um, I could see that format working very well in Nibiru um, and even having a spread across the disc so that we could have places out on the frontier and places in the core. I don't know what kind of story would be told because unlike Spire, Spire has a very strong mission of we're overthrowing the 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 high elves. Nibiru doesn't have a mission. N- nothing's Nibiru is kind of like depending on who you talk to. Nibiru has always been and always will be or the power is dimming and Nibiru is slowly dying and running out of power or it's just the end of another flicker and it's going to reset and start over like are, are we I, but it's it's one of those like again like Dune. It's just it's bigger than you. And it's going to be bigger than you. So the stories tend to be much more personal. And so it doesn't have um, a goal in mind beyond the goal of unlocking your memories. One of the other, we didn't talk about it, but one of the other things that they say uh, early on is uh, depending on body stress or your mental stress, your character may not survive. And that's okay. And that, but it's the fact that, and that's okay. Like we accept that this, this version of your consciousness isn't going to, the world continues on and you can find other, you know, build a new choice. Yeah. The choice to do only three D fours and you only have okay, beaten, wounded, and then you're dead. So you just, you only have to, you only have to fail like a handful of die rolls and your character's gone. So the game is very much like, you are not playing a heroic adventurer who is competent in a lot of these challenges. You are playing a regular human who has no memories of themselves, which makes them very vulnerable. And so as a vulnerable character, you have to try to avoid putting yourself in conflict because uh, that can go south very, very quickly for you. So if you're a kind of character who likes taking a lot of risks in your games, also in this, then you'd be prepared to re-roll your character a couple times. Um, this this is a game that sounds like when characters die, they die quickly. It, it, what it lends for me is this sense of... In other games, I, I've often had where you have teams, you have your stable of your alphas, your the ones that are built for as tanks to go out and be the heroes of the world. And then you have your support teams of varying flavors. And I think that in this world, if you wanted to do some one-shot uh, sessions where it is, we need to go and get that light bulb. I mean, we don't really know what a light bulb is because we don't know what a human is, but we need, that's what the quest is for this thing. And we either succeed or we don't. And that's a one shot character that has succeeded at that, that gets added to the, uh, to the history books of, you know, of. Oh yeah. And the book has, um, has, has these story prompts. They have tail sparks all throughout the book. Um, If I scroll to. Uh, one here, uh, a visitor from the Umbra has been beaten practically has 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 been beating practically everyone at the loop's most popular drinking game. Granted, she does have a fast metabolism due to coming from the flooded countries, but could the group beat her? And what would they win? Right? <laughs> Maybe that's your one shot. You're just going to beat someone at a drinking game. The game is full of these tail sparks to give you like a single one shot um, 
uh, uh, mission. Uh, a local scavenger band has been attacking shepherds past a flooded plain near Serupto. The band, which has been active for over 20 cycles, has increased their activity. The town council fears a Nakamore barge in exchange for the band's leader. Or the, t- the, town co- the town council offers a Nakamore barge in exchange for the band's leader alive. And so there's like all of these little tail sparks, like I'm, I don't even want to say like almost a hundred of them throughout the book, uh, all tied to the setting that you're currently reading about that as a GM, okay, well, we're, we're going to be in Asher. Uh, what are we going to do here? Uh, under a web farm's tunnels, uh, the Atlatu toil for many hours in a lapse, actually more than they are supposed to. An Umanu is taking advantage of the farm systems and have been working extra time, delaying the door's automated system and quickly archiving any complaints they receive. One fearful worker asks for the PC's help to uncover the fraudster. What will they do? And maybe some of these tail sparks will be what you are looking for in your game to help you get through a single session. Um, but you're not going to find those tail sparks until you find where in Nibiru you want to go to first. Yeah. I, I guess what I was trying to express is that it's not only like as a group, what do you want to do? But sometimes your energy in a specific day is like, oh, I just need, I need something weird or I need something that is so action. And, and it's okay. If my character doesn't survive, it's okay. Uh, like that sense of, yes, you love your characters. You don't want to do a group kill necessarily, but at the same time, Maybe today is the day where you're not so concerned about that. You can still find ways to get back into this universe and, you know, and have those multiple threads if you want. And they do mention that throughout the book when it comes to characters, because characters can die quite quickly, though. Also be very mindful with your players that these scenes are happening consensually. This is not a game where the GM and the player have an antagonistic relationship. This is going to be a game where the GM and the players are working together to uncover the stories that everyone wants to be telling. So if that day comes around where people are like, you know, maybe I do want to play with my character's mortality and put their, their, the stakes of their own life on the table here. Uh, and, and I'd be okay if they were to not survive this session. That can be a really, really wonderful story. And sometimes maybe one of the best stories you could do. But if that's not what they want today... Yeah. Don't tell that story. There's so many other things you can do. And we didn't even get around to there's a, the back half of the book is all dealing with the monsters of this world. And like mermaids are so weird. They're like mm-hmm. parasites in the water that grab bodies that have fallen into the water and wrap around their legs and create that mermaid shape. But they're just puppeting <laughs> the cadavers. <laughs> like it gets really wonderfully weird. And the machines and there's just, this is a very deep and interesting world that I would, um, I would happily explore through. And, uh, and there are, uh, modules in the book and there's a couple of, uh, like adventure books that they have put out with stories that you can go through to plan out stories. So you don't have to invent stuff on your own. Um, certainly there's, there's a lot of guidance for GMs to, to help, you tell a story in it like a more traditional RPG where it has like the module of like, here's your prologue, here's the scenes, here's some scripts that you can read, here's what you know, here's what the players know, the different scenes that you can play through. Like that's all there uh, that you can go for. So you're not like in a Powered by Apocalypse game or even like a game like Spire um, left to your own devices uh, floating in the void, even though the players are and they don't know who they are. The GM, you are you are being given a lot of uh 
of, of food on the table that you can serve up. Absolutely agree. Well, Velvet, this was an interesting one. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me uh, through through our exploration of Nibiru. Uh, not what I thought it was going to be. A uh, very different, like, it was impossible to untether the character creation process from anything else in the game um, because of the nature of the game. So unlike others, we're not going to have anything up on Patreon to share because the character sheet's empty. We haven't played the game yet. Uh, but if I do end up playing this game with our Patreon tip club, which I'm going to offer up to them, we might do that in February. The character sheets we make in that game, I might share on Patreon with you. Um, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. But uh, yeah, how did how are you feeling about this now after, after the end of this of this conversation we've had, Velvet? Uh, well, this session zero would get me ready for a true session zero. So I'm I'm truly hoping that the Patreon tip club takes you up on the offer so that I can uh, also tip you for it. All right. Well, before I give my plugs, uh, do you want to give plugs of your own? Where can we follow? What have you been up to this past month, Velvet? Yeah, I uh, I am doing a lot of shows as I always do. You can follow me through Linktree. Uh, slash Velvet Duke and uh, get a, get a hold of all of the performances that I do. But I'm also starting to facilitate a lot more teaching people about uh, musical improv at various levels. And uh, and I'm also doing one that is called Mindful Menace, and it's about being the bad guy at uh, at various levels of, of power and resource. So I'm I'm excited for that one as well. Uh, and uh, and then doing things like this, which for me are uh, straddle that line of creativity and hobby and conversation, going deep dive into things. I love these kind of conversations. Oh, I love having these conversations with you too. And you, my dear listener, can follow us, uh, Terrible Warriors, on Twitter at Dice Warriors. Uh, they took Terrible Warriors. We can't use that. Uh, as well as uh, at patreon.com slash Terrible Warriors, where you can find about our game that I just mentioned, the Tip Club, the terribly important Patreon, uh, where you can join us to um, play a game each month. Uh, we, uh, we meet usually the last weekend of each month. So uh, depending when you're listening to this, there might still be time to sign up. Uh, and uh, we, we run that either over Discord or role or whatever uh, platform works best for for the game that we've chosen um, I offer up every game we've uh, played on the podcast we work it out as the group sometimes they want to play Spire sometimes we're playing Morkborg uh, we might play Nibiru if they're up for it and you can join us for that if you also have a whole group that you want to hire me to run a game for that is also available both through Patreon at patreon.com slash terrible warriors and also uh, just message me directly uh, I'm available as a GM for hire and I'm I've been running games uh, this past Past year for for different gaming groups uh virtually of course and uh, we'll set you up we'll work the right platform get the right game i'll handle all the game mechanics if there's a game you've ever heard me run on terrible warriors and you'd like me to run it for your group and you don't want to join up with the patreon group and play with some strangers but you actually have like some friends that you'd like me to join up with uh, we'll sort that out uh, set that up uh, it's available as uh, a perk on patreon as well as um i've got my own thing going on at justinecock.com where you can find out 
uh, those those details. Uh, so I don't, again, as I have been mentioning every other episode, know what is coming up next. Uh, we're playing this by ear. I've got some more interviews uh, planned out for other spotlights. Uh, I've got a really interesting new tool that I'm waiting for them to launch. Uh, we've got the interview recorded, but we're, we're going to release that interview at the same time that the tool goes live uh, for, for Tabletop. So I'm excited to share that with you, as well as uh, more Session Zeros. I, there are other games I want to create characters in for, other ones that are on my list. And if you've got a game in mind that you love the character creation process and you really want us to highlight it on this show, by all means, reach out to me either through our Discord uh, channel with Terrible Warriors, through Twitter, uh, uh, email, whatever it is. Uh, I'm very easy to reach on just about every platform. Uh, and my last name it sticks out like a sore thumb, so I'm, I, I'm easy to find. So uh, by all means, let me know. But until then, thank you for joining me through this strange a nebulous exploration of Nibiru uh, and when and until we meet again be good to each other bye bye bye